Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest name is Richard Wilson. Richard and I dive into the topic of family offices. Richard's got plenty of experience to speak to because he runs the Family Office Club, which is one of the largest associations in the family office industry, and it's got over 1,500 registered single and multifamily offices with over a trillion dollars in wealth. He's got a book called The Single Family Office. He's got a podcast. He's got multiple businesses that he's got his hands in, all supporting the family office industry, the creation, spreading the word about what it is. And that is exactly what we dive into on this podcast. Richard explains what a family office is, how ultra high net worth individuals and families will create these entities to then help them manage their wealth, buy businesses, manage the underlying assets, So we really dive into what would it be like to sell to a family office or a family like this. But then we also flip the page and we say, okay, what would it be like to create a family office to help you manage your wealth in your businesses like this? So I think it's a very, very rich content podcast interview because everybody that is listening could potentially be on one side or the other of this scenario. So I really hope you enjoy the interview. There's lots of gold nuggets. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Richard, how are you doing today? Great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm really excited uh, to bring you on the show today, and, uh, and I think this topic that we're about to approach is one that is uh, very ambiguous, and I think your experience will be able to shed some light on it. So for the sake of our listeners, if you can you guys kind of give us a little bit of a backdrop on how you got into this family office uh, industry, this subject, and kind of where you are today? Sure. So I'll try to keep it real short and brief on the, the background of it. But essentially, for the last decade, I've been running the Family Office Club, which is a leading community of ultra-wealthy families. Um, our families are typically worth $50 million, $100 million, several hundred million, or much more. Um, and really, this term family office uh, has been emerging over the past 20, 30 years and has really taken hold in just the past two to four years is a little bit more of a mainstream word. But I got into this space because I was doing uh, risk consulting um, just out of college. Uh, before that, I'd done a little bit of uh, angel investor kind of capital raising type work for high tech startups. I was exposed to the, you know, investor capital raising world. And while doing risk consulting, you know, I was bored out of my mind. But I uh, got my MBA done, looked around, and you know, at age like 22, 23, I had my MBA and didn't know what to do. So I said, well, let's do something where it doesn't matter how much gray hair I have. <laughs> and go work in the capital markets. And so I moved to Boston, started raising capital for uh, hedge funds, fund to funds, long only, you know, uh, investment shops. And I ran into this term called a family office. And um, what I realized was that if I was going to be raising capital, why would I waste my time approaching the wealth management firms? I might as well go for the bigger tickets at the family office level, which would represent the top 0.1% or 1% of all wealth management firms out there. And uh, long story short, essentially, I saw there's you know thousands of people trying to be the expert on wealth management, but nobody was being helpful to me 
on learning about the family office space. So I decided just to kind of jump into that position. And as I learned, I'd share it with the, the public and positioned uh, myself as kind of a, a thought leader and uh, someone who's just sharing insights on the space, just as you are, uh, for you know growing business owners or business owners that are about to go through an exit, perhaps, et cetera. So that, that's I love I love how you you just find the find the hole and you fill it right and for the people that are not familiar with the term family office can you shed some light on what is a family office and what function it plays for a particular family sure and I'll give you uh, the basic answer is it's just a more complete holistic wealth management solution that is really addressing hopefully all the different things affecting your balance sheet. Traditionally, wealth management is about managing your stocks and bonds or some ETFs and REITs in your stock portfolio and market exposure. Um, but what happens is as people become ultra wealthy and you're worth 10, 20 million, 50 million or more, a 1% mistake on your taxation or your insurance coverage or your returns on your real estate and selling it one month late before a ta- after a tax law changed, et cetera, is very costly. So the wealthier you are, the less that you can afford to make little silly mistakes because your advisors aren't always talking to each other in the traditional financial planning world. Traditionally, you got your wealth management group. Separately, you have a CPA, and you're supposed to remember what your CPA says and then tell that to your insurance guy or keep <laughs> that in mind. You know, And the reality is not only are the mistakes more costly as you become more wealthy, but also you're much more likely to make a mistake because you're busier than almost every other human being on planet Earth if you're one of the top earners that goes hand in hand with people throwing opportunities at you, people asking you for money, your business having a lot of employees, a lot of daily fires to put out. And um, that'll go, that just drives the need for a family office. And I'd want to uh, define real quick, a lot of people have heard of the word family office, but you're going to start hearing about a few different types of family offices. And if you're really doing research on this for yourself, you should know up front, there's really three types. And it's very simple. There's a single family office, which means it's an organization set up just for you and your family and nobody else. The team is just serving you all day long. There is a virtual family office, which just means a very leanly operated single family office, maybe only one or two employees or even one part-time employee looking after you, but it's just very lean and that's why it's called a virtual family office, not a lot of full-time staff and overhead. And that's for people that typically are at 100 million or below, might be at 10, 20, 30, 50 million. And then there is a multifamily office, which is the close to the traditional wealth management firm as you're going to see. It's basically a more holistic wealth management solution uh, for people that are worth 10, 20 million or more. And they might have 500 clients or 20 different families they're serving or 10 different families they're serving. And um, you know, those are the three variations out there in the marketplace. If you if you see the terms, those terms thrown around in the Wall Street Journal or elsewhere. Well, and you know what? It, it, it's kind of like the whole thing of the financial advisors and all. Like, it, there's so much like ambiguity of a lot of people saying it, no one actually executing it. Because I think I mm-hmm. mentioned you right before, and our listeners have heard me probably say it, which is the fact. Well, the tax, estate, investment management, the corporate structure, all that is so intertwined. Someone actually has to look at all that stuff and not just pretend that they are. Because I, I, I've mentioned that I've. My dad and I missed out on a couple, almost a couple million dollars because of the lack of planning, the holistic planning. So I mean, it, it quickly, you have to, it takes a long time to make that up, and, right? And in any kind of returns when you're dealing with that kind of uh, those kind of assets, right? For sure. And I think it's great that you focus on business owners. I mean, I think some of the most successful. 
people that serve the ultra wealthy are focused on one type of demographic, one type of way of creating wealth, such as, you know, surgeons in a certain area or, you know, professional athletes in one area or business owners uh, of a certain size because there are specific needs and risks and typical tolerances for risk and liquidity issues that come up with focusing on a certain type Mm -hmm. of wealth creator. And I think what you just brought up is exactly one of them is that when you have something like a lot of your net worth inside of a business, just the very simple math of making sure people realize when you take money out of your business, typically, and then you're taking that income tax hit on it, hopefully not at the state level, if you've you know, uh, moved to a place like Florida like I have for that reason, uh, but then at the federal level at least, you, know, you're, you might be taking a hit on the income tax level. Uh, when you take that out of the business and you go reinvest it elsewhere, you have to know that you, know, you might be starting it, okay, now you have 66 cents on that dollar, how much returns do you have to get to get back up to that? Some people, even at that simple of math, they've been running their business so many, you know, 12 hours a day for 12 years that just getting them to think clearly about here's the options, here's what you said, the risk you want to take, here's how we might be able to structure something to minimize, you know, the taxes and fees, but maximize the inheritance gifting and the protection and your position and the, you know, the right diversity within your business and portfolio, like your ability to speak to that is going to be superior to someone who works with everybody under the sun and they don't understand the liquidity needs and risk preferences of a entrepreneur. Yeah, no, it's a very complex uh, Rubik's cube is the way I like to, to word it. And, you know, for you being on this show, I want to be able to kind of dive in and give a look into some of the ultra affluent individuals that you're working with because our listeners who are in the you know main street or most of them are in the mid market with their businesses and they're trying to figure out whether it's a family succession plan or they're going to sell to a third party or a part you know um, part of their business or however it's what are the options you know and that's kind of the whole goal is to to increase your options in, in your control and i think family offices doesn't really come to an actual option because there's not investment bankers aren't always necessarily pushing towards family offices or, or it, you kind of stumbled across it. So when you're talking into the, the, the upper, you know, the 1% as you're referring to and you're managing a portfolio with them, can you kind of describe what the investment goals are and the purposes of what, what where a family office would go out and buy companies and kind of just, I don't know exactly where you want to start with that, but kind of just... Give us some uh, insight into that. Yeah, sure. I think it's probably most helpful to just uh, quickly give like three to four real quick case studies, like one yeah. minute each or less, and then we can always go deeper on something if you want to. So yeah. one of my clients is just in his mid-40s, sold his business for several hundred million, and now he's reinvesting heavily, and his goal is to become a billionaire, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to get there. And so he loves his work, and he's energetic, and he works around the clock, and he's looking to take risk. Uh, what would be perceived as risk by other people, but he manages the downside very aggressively through structures, through partners, through cutting out layers of fees, through using consultants instead of a, a fund manager to gain expertise, et cetera. And so his motivation is to get better deal flow and just be able to move more quickly towards his goal uh, of growing his net worth, and it's a big game to him. You know, another client uh, is a first-generation family going on second-generation they just sold their business uh, last month for several tens of millions of dollars. I just spent a half day at their house. They're looking at starting a family office right now um, to acquire one business for each division of the family and then maybe some core real estate holdings for the family to pro- to make the wealth transfer um, 
you know, safe uh, for the next generation and have something that's relatively relatively low risk in the scheme of things, like a hard asset self-storage or apartment building, but they don't know what they need or want yet. So they're coming to the realization, okay, we have some components of family office in place. What are we missing? And we're helping them with um, a couple of those missing pieces. And also I happen to have uh, been in contact the last three years with a $5 million a year in profits uh, distribution business. And the business they were just in was distribution. Um, so they're very interested in um, speaking with that business about acquiring it. Um, that, that's the second example. Um, a couple other ones on different ends of the spectrum would be a more recent family has come to us that made their money in a niche industry. Um, they don't have a family office, but they want more deal flow, but only in that niche industry. So we're helping brand their family office organization around that industry so that people in that industry will see them at events. They'll see them around town. They'll see them on LinkedIn, and they'll know that even if you don't want to take VC money and deal with all their lawyers and 37-page agreements, <laughs> you could go to a family that made all their money in your niche, and they're very long-term-minded, and bring them on as a board member or sell half your business to them because they took their company public and they've got crazy connections for you. And we're helping them and positioning themselves to get entrepreneurs to say yes to them who wouldn't say yes to anyone else, and they're not even officially raising capital. Those are the best companies out there that are pumping out lots of profits and they can afford to be patient. They don't need to go and raise VCPE capital because they're desperate for it. So we're helping one family like that, which is on the small end. Our smallest client right now is $50 million, as I mentioned before. But we're talking to a couple of brothers that are in the, the $20, $30 million range. And we're looking to bring them on next month. And our largest couple of clients are 2 and $3 billion, um, both in the U.S. for those two. And they both invest heavily in the industry where they made their money as well, but they're also looking at other investments and they want to connect to other billion dollar plus family offices to co-invest joint venture and look to see how they could, you know, horse trade resources and combine efforts where appropriate uh, mm -hmm. to invest more intelligently. Well, I think you, you know, like you said, there's a lot of different ways we can go. And I think you, you, mm -hmm. you painted a really cool picture. And I think a good place to start might be is, you know, why are they doing this? And, and I can kind of maybe tee it up to you where, the reality is, like, like, let's say the average individual wants to make two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars for the rest of the year to just live off of. That makes you, you know, you reverse back into that's five million bucks. And afterwards, it's like, okay, what do you do with this money? And I think throwing it into a bunch of indexed ETFs or it's just boring, right? I mean, and there's the reality of that that you want to have a safe part of your investments, but these families are able to go buy companies, buy real estate, buy these other investments that have a little bit more of a sophisticated way to transfer wealth but then also to keep them lively because like, to, to your point it is a game you know once you're an entrepreneur it's hard to get out of it i mean one of the things that we see is once they liquidate they, they think it's their job to deploy their assets as fast as they can <laughs> and so right um you know can you maybe shed some light on some of the conversations that you're having with this family it's like what's what are they trying to accomplish by acquiring these businesses sure so a lot of them have built up their contacts, their research, maybe core team members, distribution agreements, reputation, brand, databases, intellectual property assets like patents or processes that are proprietary and just took a long time to figure out. And once they know how to work those patterns and navigate that type of jungle, then for them, really, they can take, quote unquote, risks at a much less you know downside uh, than other families. And once you're in an industry... Um, you know, it's easier to add on additional businesses than learn a whole new industry. Like for us with the Family Office Club, 
you know, we have our events that we host, you know, 10 times a year. But then we also have, you know, family office executive search. We also help people with starting the fam- starting family offices and, you know, adding on those additional divisions. We use our same office space, our same core team. I might hire one or two additional full-time people. And we wrote, you know, you might write a new book on an area where you're really focusing, like how to start a family office is an area we wrote a book on. And it just, you know, it hits it between the eyes. If that's what someone's looking to do, then you know, it's just, uh, it brings them to us. We leverage our core infrastructure and many of our families do that. And we really steal ideas from them to try to use in our own operating business that we see working over and over and over again. So one big reason is that they just see less risk and more outsized return in applying their knowledge and their DNA, just like the Jim Collins, mm-hmm. you know, hedgehog strategy of yeah. what you're passionate about, leveraging DNA and what, what could you make a lot of money at too. And that's going to line up with probably of something related to what you've done in the past. So that's one big reason. The other thing is that a lot of them have, um, if they're not a real estate family, typically, you know, the right percentage is going to depend on uh, the client, obviously, and about 50 questions you should go through first. But most families have about a 25% uh, when we surveyed them through our benchmark study, a 25% allocation to real estate when they are allocating to real estate. A lot of them like to keep 20 to 40% liquidity for a big market event like the market going down or a great buying opportunity they're not expecting or an emergency. And then a lot of them are reinvesting in one, two, or three industries that are parallel to each other or that they feel like they know. Or they might say, hey, clean energy or biotech or stem cells is going to be huge. We don't know that space yet, but let's put a stake in the ground. And on top of where we made our money, let's get into stem cells in a big way. And we're going to invest in this and we're going to that's going to be a second pillar of where we create our wealth on top of manufacturing or on top of apartment building construction, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. those are the types of thoughts going through their head. It's really oftentimes about building a platform business. You can keep on adding new businesses and cross-sell, upsell, leverage core infrastructure, and you can expand and acquire easier than your competitors at a large scale, kind of like Amazon acquiring Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Um, but also they think about niche domination. So in a small real estate, in a small geographical area, how do you dominate that niche? Or in, a, in an industry niche and in a niche within a niche, how do you just own that? Like own the intellectual property, own the relationships and just kind of lock it down with your superior knowledge and capital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you hit a, a couple cool key points there where, you know, they're, it, it's, it is their competitive edge. So it, whether it's the same industry, they're doing it because they can and they want to continue to stay relevant and it's enjoyable, right? And so right. Uh, the other one was you know, how how they like partner up with these, par- with these businesses too. So who they're looking for I think is important because they don't have to do this. And, and I think mm-hmm. if we kind of – maybe we can kind of go back and forth on how, the difference between a family office – who's doing it for their own passion, their love of a business or love of an industry or the the game of go, trying to get to the, you know, the billionaire is that's a lot different than a private equity fund. And I don't know if you want to kind of maybe just uh, point out a couple key differences that you see. Right, right. Yeah, I had this exact conversation uh, riding in the car with one of my clients who's worth several hundred million dollars and we were going to his house and we were talking about how even at a small level there's a point I think with an entrepreneur where you get to the point where you have a big enough team where if you wanted to, you could move to, you know, I don't know, a low cost place in Florida or outside in the suburb in Houston and get a nice stone house and have your employees run the business, not care about scaling it too much. 
and you could sustain yourself without working if you wanted to, you know? And when you get to that point, but you decide to double down and grow your business, I think you actually end up working harder uh, sometimes than when you are grinding from the beginning, yeah. just trying to make payroll for the first time or hire your first team member or two. And I think that's the feeling that some family offices get. It's like, well, if I'm going to choose to work and I don't have to, then I'm going to make sure that every hour I put in, it's going to be an intense hour and we're going to get real results out of this. We're not just messing around with an experiment here. So I think that is a mentality they bring to the table. And I also think that they have a permanency to their intent. Uh, if you know you want to dominate an area, uh, such as stem cells, uh, then it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter the ROI, that it's going the number of years it'll take to get an ROI on an asset. If it's going to be a strategic asset, you buy it. And mm -hmm. you know, while other people worry about payback periods and how are they going to exit before they get in, and will they get board approval or will they get their partner's approval, et cetera, et cetera? Um, is it big enough because they can only do so many deals a year and they need to be spending all their capital? They'll have to return their dry powder to their private equity LP investor clients. Family offices can be more agile, but at the same time, more patient. And the more patient could be waiting for the right price or it could be waiting for the ROI for the very long term. And we've seen this and we try to replicate that as much as we can. You know, I'm, I'm not worth $100 million, but we try to replicate that in our culture internally as well of just do things that we know inevitably will be very valuable, even if we don't know if it's going to take 11 years or three years to get an ROI on it. And I think that's really important to the competitive advantage of a private equity firm, which is different than almost everyone else out there. Like only sovereign wealth funds and some endowment funds might come even close to the type of thinking a family office can do. And importantly, Family offices fill the void between angels and super angels and the private equity groups out there. So if your company is only doing half a million a year in profits or one, two, three million a year in profits, nobody wants you, especially if you're doing 800,000 a year in profits or 600,000, you know, you're, you're an unwanted stepchild of the capital landscape. Isn't that and, you know, so you get no respect from anybody. And, <laughs> and so family offices can be there and they're excited to buy two or three different companies of your size and then sell it to private equity and aggregate that as a platform or they're excited to come in take 50 percent equity and get you to 10 million a year revenue and and three million a year profits faster or get you to 50 million a year revenue so you know they can bring real motivation and strategic expertise or a board member type seat to your cap table when you don't want anyone else on your cap table because you just see it as too messy and that You'd rather grow it organically. So I think that's important to point out too. Well, yeah, and you really know, like if you can, I mean, it's one person or, you know, a few people where you get to, to really find their motivations, right? Where you actually, mm -hmm. I mean, if someone really wants to dominate a niche, I mean, it's not going to be too difficult to see their passion and their motivation and to understand why they want your company, you know, versus right. how many horror stories you've heard of. I mean, I th don't get me wrong, there's great. Uh, there's great investment advisors out there. There's great business brokers out there, and there's great uh, private equity uh, funds out there. But it's very difficult to find them, and then and then it takes a long time to find their motivations. Because you know the, mm -hmm. a couple of things that you mentioned where like the, the the PE firms, well, they'll have to go out and raise the money, and they have to promise a return to 3M's pension fund or the police department's pensions fund, and then they have to squeeze it out of your company because it's mm -hmm. return-based where, you, you know, if you're sitting down, and obviously Mark Cuban's just a unique example because it's Shark Tank and everybody knows about it, but you know why he's doing it, and you've got clear expectations going forward. Right, for sure, for sure. 
So what is the way, you know, I, I just think about mine and my dad's situation where, you know, we would bring an investment banker in and again, you know, when you're, every investment banker wants 2 million in EBITDA and above. And then everybody mm-hmm. between 2 million and 500 is left kind of floundering because it's, it's, they're usually sophisticated, you know, older businesses that have just kind of been chugging along and you got the invest the the business brokers that hover on the down uh, you know mainstream with five million in revenue and below. How do you go out and find a family office and like how many are out there? How do you like what is the market if you're a business owner that thinks that this might be a right fit? Sure, yeah, I think there's many ways. Um, you know, several ways just to rattle off some ideas would be one: uh, the family office club on LinkedIn is free to join. There's no cost, and if you join. You can then look through by city and zip code and just identify some in your city. Um, I would also do something as simple as looking up your industry niche and the keywords family office and see who has a family office and is discussing that or has been mentioned in a news article about investing in pharma or biotech or self-storage, et cetera. Um, Also, I'm uh, I'm biased to think that conferences are a good way to meet 100 family (laughs) offices at once. So I have to plug plug that in. Um, On top of that, there are ultra-wealthy communities all around you, typically, if you're near any major city, that maybe they don't wear the name family office on their sleeve, but they might be an industry titan. They might be a very successful entrepreneur in the niche that's had a liquidity event or took a company public. So I'd keep in mind that most people who are qualified to have a family office don't have one yet and have never heard the term before. So to keep your eyes open for people in your area who, you know, if they're on the you know, if they took a company public this year, you know, Goldman Sachs, and everyone else is chasing them and banging down their door. And, you know, I don't even think it's worth the effort of trying to get their attention. But let's say they were more famous three to five years ago, and but they have a, a big track record of doing something big or having a sale to private equity or, or something like that and had a liquidity event. You know, I would uh, create a database of the top 30 leads that have relevant industry strategic expertise, but our family offices um, are qualified to have one and then work that list of 30 strategic investors. And I think you'd be surprised by the response you get if those people have made their money in your industry. They're going to be excited to talk to you and keep in touch and you know work together in some way most times. So if I'm an owner and I'm, and I'm kind of going through that process, do you en- end up engaging with advisors like yourself or the business owner? What's the, what's the process of, of the courtship or courting? Um. Usually, it's going to start out with something very concise. I would really tell people, do not write the six-paragraph essay. You're not trying to convince them to make an investment off your email. Um, I would make your voicemail very clear that you're in the industry where it looks like they're investing or where they made their money. And I would get it down to a single sentence of, you know, hi, my name's Richard. I run a $12 million a year medical device distribution business. I saw you guys invest in that area or made your money in that area. I'd like to come by your office for 10 minutes you know, next Tuesday or the following Wednesday, and here's my number. You know, and like keep the email that short as well. If you have a one pager or an infographic, maybe attach that. But nobody's going to read a 70 page PowerPoint, and no one cares to read your long business plan for they know who you are. You're just selling them on getting 10 minutes of FaceTime. And I would just start it like that to get their attention and make sure you point out why the heck they should meet with you or get on the phone with you and just make it easy for them. You know, just tell them exactly what you're doing and why you want to meet keep it real short and try to do it in person. So let's say you get the meeting and you're sitting down. Um, I think, you know, on this show or in the, you know, M&A industry, there's a lot of buzz terms about the EBITDA, all the due diligence process and stuff like that. I mean, would, we're in the spectrum of that whole process. Do you see them and what's the most important things that they look at? 
Um, can you say that question another so way? It, yeah. Okay. I'll, maybe I'll rephrase it. So, you know, if you're sitting down with an investment banker, there's a lot of dude, you know, they help package you up and they, you know, like, you right, know, like you right. were saying, they've got the prospectus, they got the whole simmer and they're, you know, they're marketing it to do the controlled auction or whatever it might be. Um, sure. What is it that they're looking for? And I, and I okay. might be able to, cause you know, it's a little bit different if it's a strategic buy versus a financial buy, you know, like what is it that, you know, right. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one thing we're going to look at is do you have a reasonable valuation? You know, lots of people out there, especially the ones who aren't making much money, think that they're worth the moon. And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, we're this mobile app or we're this high tech startup. And, you know, on our first valuation round with some golf club investors, they valued us at five million dollars. And after two years, they have no revenue still or they're losing money. Those things drive me nuts because family offices are used to, you know, putting a five million dollar valuation on something that's making $1.5 million a year mm-hmm. profit, you mm-hmm. know? So they're not going to pay $5 million for your mobile app idea. You know, uh, they could burn the money outside, out and back of their house if they wanted to uh, do that. So <laughs> I think that um, people just need to know the valuations have to be reasonable. And typically that means if you're doing under a million a year profits, unless it's scaling like wildfire and you have a very defendable position, you're going to be worth, you know, three times profits. Um, if you're at a million or very close to a million, it's typically going to be 3.5, maybe four times profits. And over a million, you know, up to that three million range, you're playing with the four to six, four to five, four, four to five point five times valuation will be a fair valuation in the eyes of the family office. And you should really see that with their help, it's like pitching on Shark Tank. It's like, do you want the shark on your team or do you not? Mm-hmm. Because they're not going to say yes to the golf club valuation that uninformed, non-strategic, non-titans of industries are going to agree to who see no deal flow and don't even know what the market rate is mm-hmm. for a good piece of deal flow. If you want that money, you can always go find dumb money at a higher valuation. But you have to decide, do you want the family office strategic money or the dumb money? And I think that people forget that. No, and I, I think you you hit on a huge point here too because it's it, – and that kind of uh, dovetails into how do they like to structure it because I think to your point, having a strategic partner like that can also make you more money. So like what is the best way that – or the, the var- variations of ways that they, the family offices like to structure the deals? Most families are going to want control if they're worth several hundred million dollars and they've made a lot of money in your industry you're going to have to know going in that there's a good chance they're going to want control of your business. Um, and the reasons are many. Uh, one is that even if you are aligned to be a good steward of their wealth and they might only invest 40%, even if you're perfectly aligned, they've already made a lot of money in this industry and you're still proving yourself at some level, mm-hmm. assuming you you both created wealth in the same space. And so um, they want to make sure that their money is treated well and they don't want it abused by a third party, which it often, you know, does get to be abused. And so they want to de-risk that often. Um, and so that's important to know upfront that that might be requested. Um, also, you know, going into it, they oftentimes will want some sort of earn out. So they might see that you want to sell a hundred percent, but at the beginning they might want to only buy 51%. And at a certain valuation, and then once you hit this other benchmark, they'll buy out another 20% or another 30%, and they want you to have skin in the game. And before they get to that point of even structuring the deal, oftentimes, you know, families, especially when the entrepreneur tries to stick a high valuation to them, they look around and they see, could they buy a different competitor at a three times valuation? Um, And then they'll just go dark on the current negotiation, or they'll say, well, you know, we have the team, we know this space, 
uh, why don't we start our own thing? And instead of buying you for five million, we'll throw a million at our own, and we'll own a hundred percent. And we're going to be your size in fourteen months. And now we're going to be coming <laughs> and, and eating your lunch. You know. Yep, yep. So I think people forget some of that, and they think that that is not an option, and it very much is. And so you have to really, you know gel with the spirit and you know that's be somewhat of a trust level with that family office investor too because you're kind of opening the kimono to them and you have mm-hmm. to be careful about what you reveal the truth is if they're very sophisticated in your space anything you reveal you're not really teaching them anything they might be teaching you something by the questions they ask mm-hmm. and the types the level of questions they ask and their background should either grow your desire to work with them because there is no risk or if they seem to just be if they seem to not know a lot, but they're asking lots and lots of questions, you know, then you have to reflect that in the valuation you offer them because they're going to be adding less strategic value, likewise, yep, good point. Uh, post-close. Yep, good good point. And so, and I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, regardless whether it's a PE firm or anybody, even if it's just a single private investor or family office or whatever it is, people want control because, I mean, why take the risk and not have control? And that's why you can discount it for estate tax planning purposes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty pretty normal and you know what let's say there's a deal structured and you know we're you know they're working with one of your clients or a family office like that what what is like the kind of the management styles you've seen with a combination of the uh the individual the wealthy family and the the advisors like yourself or their family office do you what, what does that structure usually look like sure yeah so um if they're going to be a minority investor, oftentimes they want a board seat or they want to at least have a say when it comes to the future sale of the business or a say on whether they agree that they're okay with being diluted on a future round of capital being raised, et cetera. So they like some sort of minority controls or minority protections around abuse, transparency, reporting. Reporting on operating businesses is oftentimes very inconsistent and not professionally done, you know, until you, until you get to 10 million a year in revenue most people, that's an afterthought, and you're lucky if you get a biannual report with much granularity. Um, and proper accounting oftentimes isn't done. So I think that's important to note. Um, many times families would want to acquire the business but leave the executive management in place and add to your executive staff. Many companies, until you get a $10, 20000000 million a year in revenue, don't have all of the senior executive staff they need because they've been living off the business and drawing you know, 200, 500,000 a year profits or more from the business instead of reinvesting it heavily in the business to grow it faster. Mm -hmm. And so the family office recapitalizing the business, they want to put the executive staff in place and ramp up sales and marketing and maybe have a little bit of debt in the business, maybe not. But oftentimes it means that the family office is, you know, controlling those management aspects and driving it forward. And Sometimes they leave the executive staff in place, but they want it literally in the family office's place of business. It just depends on the geographical relocation options of mm-hmm. that operating business they're acquiring, really. So then the – and I, may, I might have been uh, unclear on a couple of those things. So, so you sure. got um, – obviously the individuals who were the families that grew and sold their company and they're specialized in the niche. So they're obviously going to be doing a lot of the stuff that you said too. Does that also include the advisors that the family office is helping that individual with? So they're kind of involved in the business as well too, or is there usually synergistic, um, skill sets that are, that are applied? I'm just kind of curious on the relationship on how, cause I believe I totally agree with everything you said too. I'm just, where does it, where does the line start and stop between the advisors of the family office and the individual? Sure. Um, 
you know, there's trends like the size of a family and how much they're focused on one or two industries will change where they are in the spectrum of level of structure and, Mm -hmm. you know, leveraging their infrastructure for the operating business. Many times it comes down to like the Dan Sullivan concept of unique ability and applying that to a family office's portfolio of direct investments and really them saying to themselves, what are we excellent at and what do we have infrastructure for that we can leverage? And that's part of the sales process to the entrepreneur saying, hey, we have all the back office accounting. We have an outsourced CFO that you can leverage and we are killer at lead generation and marketing and branding. So when we come into this, we're going to be doing all your marketing, all your accounting, and mm-hmm. you guys are going to be the sales force and the executive team and the talent. But we're going to, you know, really dial up your financial literacy and uh, knowing your ratios and KPIs and your financial metrics mm-hmm. and also pushing the marketing. So uh, different clients will have different skill sets they bring to the table. And that that is what determines how deeply, you know, embedded those advisors are in the business or the infrastructure is in their business. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that and that kind of almost reflects, and I think the the term a lot of people are probably familiar with is more kind of like a holding company too, right? Where you're centralizing a lot of the operations or cross pollinating very good skill sets and services between uh, current holdings, correct? Right, right, that's correct. So uh, I want to maybe kind of flip the switch while we got some time left. Um, where so now we've been talking about kind of selling to a family office, but I think a lot of the individuals that are listening to this can also create one themselves too. And I, you kind of touched on it already, but let, let's kind of dive into, you know, I think you had mentioned prior to us jumping on that a lot of people think that they've got a family office, but like they've got their CPA, they've got their insurance guy, they've got their financial advisor, they got their banker, but they really don't have a family office structure. So what does that look like? How do you know whether you've got one or not? And then how do you put one together? Sure. Yeah. So on a high level, you know, people think they have family offices sometimes when they hear that, you know, oh, you need a foundation or a CPA or insurance advisor, et cetera. Um, But oftentimes you don't if you haven't heard the term before, because it really means at the core that you have people managing the pieces of your balance sheet holistically. And many people just don't don't have that in place. And so what you really need at the very minimal level um, is basically to uh, basically have someone who's managing and playing quarterback in a central place. And you need documentation and systems to manage it. So just like when you're starting the business and you're working really hard every day and then you finally get to hiring your first few employees and you need to work on the business and not in the business, you, you need a family office so that you're working on the system that's overseeing your assets and you're not working on an asset and just working on the business. Now you need to work on your portfolio of businesses, on your portfolio of assets. It's another level up of systems thinking about your balance sheet and about protecting yourself and growing your assets. And I think that is the difference. Many times people don't have the core charter document or management dashboard in place to manage the chaos. And Mm-hmm. Um, people need a family office if they want to, you know, reduce chaos and stress, have a more holistic mindset and oversight on their assets and their service providers that are serving them, define their strike zone and their goals more, organize and prioritize their deal flow, and then as an end result, do all of that so they have less taxes, less fees paid, hopefully, as well as, uh, you know, better returns because you're more focused and organized in what you're doing. Many times people are operating shooting from the hip on deal flow on stacks of paper on their desk or maybe maybe an excel spreadsheet of deal flow that's prioritized that might be updated 
and just verbal conversations and it gets very messy and chaotic and many times on the team it's not been set out explicitly exactly what the strike zone is for investments that they're looking for right now so you end up taking a lot of meetings they're a complete waste of time you end up looking at deals that you should have never looked at and just a little bit of formalization can save a lot of time and grief it's so crazy because when like before we sold when we needed money and needed funds you can't find it and then next thing you know you sell and everybody knows it like hey by the way i got this cool building i got this software company over in california i mean this or that it it is mind-boggling like how much stuff comes out of the woodwork right yeah for sure families oftentimes also need someone just to say no for them so when their brother-in-law or their cousin (laughs) or their best friend from college comes to them they can say oh well let me send it to my family office we'll see if it fits our current mandate and then we can nicely and politely say oh maybe not right now but you know maybe you've heard of a family office that would like to look at it or suggest to them how they could network with similar type investors Mm -hmm. and at least be helpful to them without the family member taking time to actually take the meeting and have that like social pressure to to say yes just because they feel bad because everybody wants a handout uh, and thinks that you can afford one at that point. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you're when you saying managing to the balance sheet, I think that's something that everybody in their business understands. But when you're thinking about a family balance sheet, you can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit more? And I don't want to steal too much, but you're referring to like the, the net worth and the cash flow, mitigating taxes, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if there's anything that you want to kind of expand on. Yeah, everything from, uh, it could be everything from like concierge, like bill paying to charitable giving to how you structure real estate investments to what are your long-term trust and estate, you know, goals and making sure that planning is synced up with insurance policies or fund management investments are synced up with having a insurance wrapper around it if appropriate, et cetera. And you know, there's a saying that if you know one family office, you know one family office. It's really not true. People like to say it because it sounds nice. Uh, it just There's a lot of different variations out there. But if you talk to two families that are both worth $2 billion and they both made their money in real estate, they're going to have a lot in common. So there's different, you know, if you look into the Amazon jungle, there's a lot of different types of animals out there. But if you narrow it down to snakes that live in a certain area between X size and Y size, you know, they have a lot in common. And mm-hmm. so our job here at the Family Office Club is to help break down you know, the species and genius of different types of animals out there in the family office jungle and just make it a little bit easier for people to meet with each other if they are ultra wealthy and they're running their own family offices and make the space easier to navigate for those raising capital. And um, we've seen that the result is that we can act as a a helpful, you know, uh, more efficient provider of an industry platform that way. Because really, at the end of the day, it shouldn't be as hard as it is, but it's just such a new industry and there is just a lack of awareness that this concept even exists. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest challenge right now. So we're just trying to spread the word as far and wide as possible about it and just be helpful. Even if we never do business with anyone listening to your podcast or to our family office podcast, like, you know, that's fine because it just spreads the word of mouth. And then it's, it all comes around as good karma long-term if we can add genuine value to someone listening here today. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I, and I think, you know, about, my situation, my client situation, or even uh, there's a gentleman that just sold for a large amount of money that I'm uh, in touch with, and it, like I, I think the biggest challenge to even starting the family con- family office conversation is that 
everybody's got these relationships. And I think, you know, a lot of people out, outgrow their advisors in a lot of different areas. And I know we did too. And you, you feel this blind loyalty to them. Um, so, you know, a couple questions as we're kind of getting towards the end is one is like, how do you, how do you determine who to hire and then whether your people are capable of staying into the team or not? And then, you know, what kind of payment structure or, uh, or fee structure is, is typical for a family office? I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, this comes up all of the time. I think at the very least you need to get a second opinion on your trust in the state of planning um, a second opinion maybe on how your accounting is being done to make sure it's appropriate at your level of wealth. And a good rule of thumb is to see if, if are you the only family office client they have and have they ever heard of the word family office before? Um, do they have other clients worth $10 million, $50 million or more and how many do they have? And if the answer is zero or only one or two, then you should either compartmentalize their work and okay, keep them on as your accountant for that one operating business but then bring on a higher level accountant for the family office level of work um, mm -hmm. to respect what they've brought and keep their opinion, their valuable opinion at the table since they know the nuances in case an audit comes up, they can help you navigate that. And maybe don't burn the bridge with them, but maybe compartmentalize or, or minimize uh, their work to some degree. But many times people need to upgrade their service providers um, because they've outgrown them completely. And um, that's something that's not always easy to do. It's kind of um, not the most enjoyable process. Um, in addition to that, in terms of fees and structure, many times currently, um, multifamily offices might charge, uh, 60 to 80 basis points, um, or 1% flat, sometimes over 1% if they're doing concierge work and more advisory work or philanthropic related work. Sometimes trust and estate legal costs and fund manager investments will be on top of a 1% or 1.25% charge. Um, other times it's structured by someone who acts in a consulting function and they'll just have a retainer for setting up the family office and then maybe just upside on deals completed, uh, direct investments completed through deal flow that they brought to the table. Um, there's a full spectrum out there. A lot of it comes down to whether you're keeping your current private banker or wealth management firm in place and you just need help starting a family office to layer on top of that and you're going to keep uh, the current wealth management practice in place. Or do you want to completely scrape what you have now, start over fresh, and have a complete holistic solution that comes in a, in a ready-to-go kind of box that will then be customized, trust in the state, and portfolio allocation-wise to your needs, but all being ran by one organization. So that'll change what your needs are and who the relationships are with. But mm -hmm. I would say more often than not, people keep... Um, you know, I'd say probably 60% of the time people are keeping their private banker or wealth man management firm in place to begin with, and they're layering on top direct investments into real estate and operating businesses. And then long-term as they grow, or if their wealth is more than two to 300 million, then they might uh, switch over who's doing their wealth management. But it really depends on the preferences of the family and what options they have on the table. And a lot of it comes down to trust, relationships, mm -hmm. transparency, and just a good match in, in all of those things. So is that, are those um, basis points applied to the assets or the overall net worth do you see? Many times it's um, applied to the assets, but there could be breakdowns based on how much wealth is being managed. I know one group might charge 60 basis points on the first 100 million and then 40 million, uh, or sorry, 40 basis points on each 100 million after that. They happen to require a minimum 100 million investable assets. Um, many people say, well, 
I won't get out of bed for less than 200000 a year as a fee. So we might be a non-discretionary, they might offer a non-discretionary investment consulting solution or an outsourced chief investment officer uh, solution to families, but they charge a minimum 200000 Mm -hmm. And what that comes out to in terms of basis points might be standardized once you get to a certain level of net worth. Mm -hmm. But if you're at 30 million or 80 million and you want their help, they're still going to charge you 200,000 because for less than that, it just doesn't make sense for their business because the margins aren't amazingly high for this type of work uh, because it takes so much work and expensive brain power on the team to fulfill the work. Well, yeah, I mean, you're essentially, I mean, they're all business individuals and entrepreneurs, so it, it's like having a mm -hmm. CFO, I mean, right? I mean, you're, right. so, you know, what they can expect for those, you know, for those costs or those investments, because it should be an investment because their return should be huge for whatever savings or return they get. I mean, is it like like a CFO quality where they've got the CFO, the attorney, or a quarterback that's working with their people? I mean, what what is the uh, the communication style and expertise look like that, that comes with that, that fee? Um, typically you're working just with the wealth creator and their family. Um, sometimes you'll be working with the head of their business unit. Sometimes there's some synergies that could be played out, um, in interviews that need to be done and, and data collected from the business unit heads. You might be interacting with the operating business CEOs that they own a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, but most of the work is done with the wealth creator themselves. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes um, people have a liquidity event and then they hear of the word family office in one or two places. They try to figure out what it is. And then they realize that there's been chaos created by a lack of systems being put in place at that higher level and their need to have the systems to manage the chaos and to operate at that higher mental level of navigating deal flow and a portfolio of businesses makes it so they're very much engaged and excited to get a family office solution in place. Mm -hmm. So then on the uh, family office advisory side, is it is it actually like CPAs or wealth managers or um, attorneys that are on staff for them for that, or like what what kind of layers of payroll? I guess is pretty much what they're getting. What what, what can they expect for that fee? Um, if you wanted to have a virtual family office, you simply need to find one or two people. Uh, that you either put on payroll or that you find as an outsourced professional, mm -hmm. and you might be paying four to ten thousand a month on the low end, up to four hundred thousand a year on the high end, and just have one or two people, and then outsource everything else, and be very focused on the goals of the family. That's the most lean structure. The next structure would be having a. This is the most common one, I would think, um, is families that are at a hundred, two hundred million or more, um, but under a billion will often have four to 12 team members. I just got off the phone with someone who has uh, 800 million in assets. They have three people pretty much running everything and they've outsourced the rest, but they are full-time employees like W2 staff mm -hmm. of the family office. Um, I talked to another group. It's just father and son and it's a $150 million net worth family here in Florida um, that we just spoke to yesterday. And so they're they're another example of um, kind of a virtual family office type. Mm -hmm. But then we have clients that have 100 plus staff members. So it depends on whether the cost allocation is going to go down to within the operating business unit or if there's advantages to having the cost allocation at the family office level. Mm -hmm. um, and that can change your staff level. If you push it all down into operating businesses and that is allowed with your structure and unique abilities of your family, then it drastically changes fulfilling all the CFO, accounting, marketing, graphic design roles at the family office level. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I mean, because that's the beauty of 
when you get to that level because the cost can be allocated to uh, entities that can use it as a write-off. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Right, right, for sure. Um, you know, I don't want to mislead anyone by just talking about it in a cursory level, but there are advantages to having a formalized family office, you know, LLC sometimes in place that mm-hmm. is, has its own P&L. So you can write off some family meetings that otherwise might just look like a com- uh, casual conversation to the IRS and an audit. But yeah. you really are looking at deal flow and you really have like meeting notes on a deal you're doing due diligence on. And it's a legitimate reason. And, um, you know, many, many family offices set it up that way. Obviously, you know, in your country or city state, you have to do your own research. And with everything we're talking about here on any podcast you yep. ever listen to, you got to you know, do your own homework. Yep. Yep. No, I think it's uh, fantastic insights. You know, Richard, is there, is there anything that you want to highlight from the, the kind of the, the breadth of stuff that we've talked on? Um, I think the last thing is just the importance of having excellent deal flow as a family office. If you can decide what type of deal flow you want and then position yourself strategically to get great deal flow within a niche industry, then that positioning is going to sweat for you day in and day out, whether you're proactively pushing it or not. People are going to find you more often and send you deals more often in that area. And I think that's missed by a lot of families. And also what's missed that's connected to that is that if you're only looking at 20 real deals a year or you're only seeing 100 deals in your inbox per year, then you have horrible deal flow and you could have much better investments most likely unless all of your friends are Jeff Bezos uh, you know, and Warren Buffett, et cetera, which I'm, you know, I'm sure they're probably not. Um, and so what happens is people, I think, don't realize that if you could keep the quality high and the industry focus niche-focused, then with those two things assumed, it'd be better if you're getting 500 pieces of deal flow. You might still only take the time to have a phone call with 50 of them per year. You might only take the time to meet with 20 of them per year. But that 20 is going to be so far superior than if you only get 100 pieces of deal flow through your inbox or voicemail box per year. Mm -hmm. Because you need to find those statistical anomalies where someone really respects your strategic expertise or they had a divorce or a death in the family, or they have to sell for uh, an industry change that's coming. Um, those anomalies is what you're looking for. And it's anomaly on valuation or opportunity or upside or market timing or talent or JV with another family office. And you're just not going to find many anomalies if you're only looking at 20 deals a year um, in total. And a lot of families you know, would be benefiting if they had more deal flow coming in. Nope, totally agree. If there's a uh, one place for our or a couple places for our listeners to get in touch with you, what would it be? Uh, if you love podcasts like this one, I mean, we have our family office mm-hmm. podcast. Um, we also have um, the most visited website in the industry. It's just called familyoffices.com. So that's pretty simple. Um, and we've got a best-selling book as well called the Single Family Office Book. Uh, you can grab that on Amazon, or if you shoot me an email, I'll just give it to you for free. We don't really care about selling them. We're just trying to spread the word about the industry. And um, my email is uh, richard at familyoffices.com. And I will put all those links in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for coming on the show.